welcome to the Volva Diaries with host Dr. Amanda Selk, bringing you the 101 on vulvovaginal health. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Kristen Stewart, a dermatologist in Florida. She's from Jacksonville, and she's our first repeat person on our podcast. Hi, Dr. Stewart. Hi, how are you? Great. So today we're going to talk about hydroadenitis suppurativa. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, Hydroadenitis suppurativa is often referred to as HS because it's a hard thing to say and it makes it a little bit easier. And it's a chronic inflammatory recurrent, also debilitating skin disease that usually presents after puberty. One of the reasons why I love taking care of patients with hydradenitis and feel a passion for this condition is that the disease is burdensome to the patient in a way that's unlike most other skin diseases due to the devastating effects on the quality of life. So I really feel this um, passion to teach about it and help other people and patients, you know, take care of themselves. Is it a common condition? It's quite common, and the exact prevalence is really not known predominantly because it's very underdiagnosed. I think that's one of the biggest things. Average time to diagnosis is about seven years, and that's just to go back to why I love teaching about it is so that earlier you can diagnose, you can make a huge impact on people's quality of life. But to answer your question, probably the most common estimates I've seen um, published for the United States is about 1% to 4%. Wow, that is really common. So how is it usually diagnosed? The diagnosis is usually clinical, and it's a presentation of three factors that kind of come together. And that's mostly that you have usual type lesions in the usual locations, and that the lesions tend to be chronic and they recur. And those lesions tend to be painful, kind of deep-seated inflamed nodules or abscesses, fistulas. They can be sinus tracts, which are more linear, and almost always there's some scarring present. And the usual locations are under the axilla, so under the armpits, under the breasts, and in the groin. And in the groin, it's most likely or usually in the inguinal creases, the mons, the labia majora, the buttocks, and the medial thighs. And less commonly, you'll see hydradenitis in the scalp and the back. What are the patients usually complaining about? Usually, the symptoms for patients are pain, drainage, the foul-smelling odor of the drainage, and then the subsequent scarring, and that one of the important parts of the diagnosis is that lesions will essentially kind of resolve in a way and scar, but then recur again in the exact same location. And this is why it can have such an impact on quality of life, because it's usually occurring in women about three times as more as men. After puberty, most patients are in teens, 20s, and early 30s. It's very difficult to have relationships. It affects self-esteem. It affects work, too, because of the pain and missed work days when there's a lot of drainage or it's embarrassing that there's odor or they have to wear different types of bandages so that drainage doesn't get on their clothing. Why do you think it takes so long for people to get diagnosed? It's a great question. And 
one I wish that I could totally solve. I think it's multiple things. I think it's that some patients, and probably 30 to 40% of patients, have a family history and someone that has hydradenized also. And a lot of them, I find, will say, oh, I just have this because I get boils or I get abscesses like my mom or like my dad or something like that. Some people are actually very accepting of it and don't realize that it is a entirely different diagnosis and that there's specific treatments for it. The other thing I think is that patients tend to present to the medical field when they're flared. They present to primary care, they may present to the emergency room, they may present to urgent care. And at the time, they're just dealing with that acute flare, but they're not seeing the whole picture or not realizing that there's more that can be done for treatment. I think too that gynecologists don't really learn much about this and when it presents in, you know, the genital area and it's really a skin condition. Mm-hmm. As you're saying, all this more teaching about it can help people to think about it and recognize it more. Yes. So you talked about family history. Are there any other so there's probably some genetic causes to it. Do we know anything else about the causes? Right. So the cause is still pretty unclear. We feel like it is mostly a multifactorial process. Genetics, as we mentioned, environmental, probably because we know that friction and obesity play a role as to sweat and exercise and flaring things. Many women flare with their periods. And so there may be some hormonal factor also. But the main thing that we kind of talk about in the skin is that for some reason, the follicle becomes occluded and dilates and then ruptures and causes this inflammatory process that is dysregulated. And the patients start to develop nodules and the abscesses. And then the hair follicles that are inflamed start to join each other. And that's kind of how I picture um, the sinus tracts forming and then the scarring. Sometimes I'll relay it to patients when they're trying to grasp what's going on. Someone who doesn't have hydradenitis shaves under their arms or gets hot or sweaty and they get a little red bump around a hair follicle that lasts a couple of days and goes away. But people with hydradenitis, it's almost like they overheal it, their body overreacts to it. And a lot of times they get this scarring on top and it looks like it's gone, but there's this brewing kind of biofilm and inflammation underneath um, in the lesion. And that kind of builds up again over time or with additional irritation and becomes recurrent and active again. So how do you treat it? So a common thing I tell patients, not just with hydradenitis, but this is um, when we don't have you know, the one thing that fixes it, I tell them that there's good news. There are a lot of treatments to treat hydradenitis. The tough part is anytime there's lots of treatments to treat something, it's because we don't have one thing that works for everybody every time. And then I go on to say, and this isn't something that we're going to give a treatment and it's going to go away. This is something like high blood pressure or high cholesterol where we're going to treat it and we're going to manage it, but you have to continue the treatment to maintain the control that you get for it. And then I usually always start by talking about lifestyle modification. If patients are overweight, it's been shown that weight loss can help. The prevalence of smoking is higher in people who have hydradenitis, although it's not a causal factor. Um, So if someone is overweight or a smoker, really work on getting them resources to help with those. Talk about activities or things that exacerbate it, especially if I'm just asking them to work on weight loss, helping them with dietary resources, 
how to exercise without flaring their HS, which is not an easy thing to do. Swimming is great, but not around for everybody. And doing things that are more low intensity or low impact can be really helpful. Um, Loose fitting clothing can be helpful too. The medical treatment list then after the lifestyle modifications start with topical therapies first and usually work best for people who have more mild disease. The topical therapies often start with a topical clindamycin. It's used for anti-inflammatory properties, though I traditionally pair it with benzoyl peroxide the same way I do in acne to minimize the risk of antibiotic resistance. Also, you can do, for mild disease, interlesional steroid injections. This is very helpful for early painful lesions. They don't have a lot of drainage or fluctuance to them, but they're just small and painful. Another thing that's great for a small new lesion that can be effective in preventing progression is to do a punch debridement of it. If it's isolated by itself, I'll do a punch biopsy and let it heal in by secondary intent. And the hope is that the inflammation scars down and that it doesn't recur. After that, for more severe disease, we start with systemic antibiotics, and they're used, again, mainly to decrease inflammation. A common concept is, you know, hydrogenase is a problem with hygiene, or it's an infection, and it's neither. If it were an infection, we could use antibiotics and we cure it. But we use antibiotics to, again, decrease the inflammation and treat that secondary infection. Commonly starting with doxycycline or minocycline, 100 milligrams twice a day, and you can do that for a little while. I often will start with a month or so. Um, I do combine it again with benzoyl peroxide to decrease the risk of resistance. And if that doesn't work, I'll do a combination antibiotic treatment with clindamycin and rifampin for two months or one uh, doxycycline or minocycline with the rifampin for two months. And for people who have kind of mild to moderate disease, that can often give them a good reprieve and not have many flares for a little while, even months after the treatment has stopped. Other things we kind of add on, like the list is long, like I said, if it's a woman and her symptoms tend to flare with her periods, I'll talk about using oral contraceptive pills or spironolactone. If she has a history of PCOS or a background a medical history for metabolic disease, I'll talk about and consider using metformin. And there are a couple other things that we use that are further down the list. But probably the next thing I'd move to is the biologics and the TNF inhibitor adalumab, the common name is Humira, is currently actually, of all the things we've talked about, I should say, they're all off-label. Only the adalutumab is currently the only one with the FDA approval to treat hadridinitis. And it's approved for Hurley stage two and three which in just a minute, I can go back and describe those stages. And then the additional treatment modalities, aside from medical treatment and the lifestyle modifications, is surgery. And there's very much a continuum or spectrum of local surgical things that can be done to more wide, expansive surgical things that have done. What I have found is anytime you're talking about doing something that's wider or more broad for surgery, it is ideal to have the disease as medically controlled as possible to maximize the success of the surgical treatment. I'll pop back to, if you don't mind, I talked a little bit and called things kind of mild disease, moderate or severe, but a way to 
classify hydradenitis. Um, there are multiple classification systems, but the one that's used most commonly is the Hurley staging system. It's a great way because you can document and you know, know where this person kind of stands and have a clinical picture. Its downside is that it does not assess disease activity and it doesn't assess treatment response or the effect of the disease on a patient's quality of life. But Hurley stage one um, is kind of what I consider mild disease. It's single or multiple isolated abscesses without sinus tracts or scarring. And I tend to treat these with the topical therapies and maybe short courses of oral antibiotics. Hurley stage two, these patients have recurrent abscesses with at least one sinus tract and scarring, but they're separated by normal skin. And that's where you're going to get more into combination antibiotics, adding in biologics, and getting into some other treatments. And then Hurley stage three is diffuse boils or abscesses with multiple interconnected sinus tracts and no intervening normal skin. So essentially the whole area involved is affected. And then the whole goal is to get these patients early so they never make it to stage three because it's so much harder to treat. And once that architectural change is there and that scarring's there, there's very little medical intervention that can be done to undo it. So the whole goal is prevention. That's very comprehensive. Do you also talk to the patients about um, not picking at the lesions and traumatizing them? Yeah, they often are so painful that they tend not to pick at them. Sometimes flares will happen um, with shaving and people are like, I was doing okay until I shaved. And that seems to be a trigger for some people. Laser hair removal can be helpful in some cases, but in some cases people get laser hair removal and it doesn't help. So I think it helps in some, but I find that they're often too painful to pick. Patients will definitely try to push on them, pull on them, or to bust them open so that they drain. We have a very fluctuant, tender nodule. Um, incision and drainage can be a great treatment in the acute moment, and it gives patients relief, and it should be done. But the practitioner should realize that incision and drainage in no way changes or alters or improves the overall disease progression. It should be done, especially when people are very uncomfortable or that they're hurting themselves because they're trying to get it to drain because they know it's going to give them relief, but that it is not going to change or alter disease progression. And I think another point that you made that was important was that there's a lot of therapies and it's not just biologics, even though they're the ones that are FDA approved, because there's so much marketing around them. Yes. You're absolutely right. And the things that I mentioned today are really kind of the tip of the iceberg. And we love when they work and they're the most common things, but there's much more underneath that can be done or tried. And I tell patients that we're going to start here and we're going to work up the ladder and we're going to keep going until we find enough control to improve your quality of life so that you're comfortable. Is there any other key take-home points you'd like our listeners to hear today? Um, There's probably two, and one I've alluded to again and again, but I think it's so important, and it's just the support and counseling of patients. This disease is embarrassing and makes people feel very self-conscious, lack of control. It affects their ability to participate in social events, athletic activities, and it really can kind of lead to a lot of isolation, shame, depression, 
anxiety. We see increased risk of substance abuse in patients with hydradenitis. The overall quality of life indices compared to other diseases, skin diseases that have heavy burdens like psoriasis or eczema when they're severe, HS far outweighs that in how patients rate their quality of life as being worse. And so to recognize that and help them have resources can really make a big difference. The other thing is that the evolving concept of HS is that it is this inflammatory process that's not just in the skin, but has a high comorbidity burden and associated with other inflammatory problems, including metabolic disease, hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, its association with PCOS, thyroid disorders even joint pain or arthropathies. Oh, and one I can't forget to mention is inflammatory bowel disease, especially Crohn's disease. And it's important to screen patients for these comorbidities and to talk about them and to help them manage those also. I've heard that sometimes Crohn's actually gets mixed up with hydradenitis, but that you can also have it coexisting. Yes, it can be really difficult. Cutaneous Crohn's disease can look a lot like hydradenitis, and under the microscope, it can be very hard to find the difference. Or if you find a granuloma that is somewhat specific for Crohn's, that can help, but that can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. So HS and Crohn's can really have overlapping features, especially when patient only has symptoms in the anogenital area and they don't have symptoms under the axilla. One thing that can help is one of the classic findings in cutaneous Crohn's disease is knife-like fissures. And there are these deep linear fissures that would really put you more towards Crohn's disease than hydradenitis. And those treatments overlap too with the biologics. That's great. I think you covered a lot of key points today. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you so much. That's Dr. Kristen Stewart again. She's a dermatologist from Florida. 